0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm deeply honored to accept this award on behalf of the many people who have contributed to the Office of Developmental Primary Care's mission over the past 15 years. We're grateful for the numerous disability advocates, community partners, Healthcare providers, regional center leadership, health plan personnel, and health profession students who've donated their time and expertise to move us forward. It's definitely been a collaborative effort. There's an extensive list of thought leaders, more than I can name individually, who've contributed to our success. When I arrived at UCSF as a new faculty member in 1999, I was working in the faculty practice. I didn't come to UCSF with any particular intention to serve people with disabilities, but the community came to me with an unmet need, and it's the role of a family physician to go where your community leads. People with disabilities were showing up on my schedule. Patients would arrive with a driver and an aide. Neither supporter could give me a medical history. The patients didn't have a fluent way to express themselves. They traveled with oxygen and medicine in case of seizures. Our exam rooms were too small to accommodate their wheelchairs and their staff. We had no wheelchair scale. I had no way to safely transfer them to an exam table. I could see how stressful it was for patients to come to the office. They sat in my waiting room for a long time. They were uncomfortable there because the bathroom wasn't big enough to change a diaper. Our elevator broke regularly or a patient was too anxious to come in the door. I'd go downstairs to try to see a patient in the van. The patient supporters handed me their notebook. I signed their paperwork, but I wasn't providing what I consider care. So I started asking questions. Where do you live? who funds your supports. How does this work? And what I learned was that our practice was serving several group homes that had the same administrator and nurse. And each doctor in our practice had a few of the patients. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to bring the clients in for an ineffective appointment. So I offered to take all the patients from the homes onto my panel and do home visits so I could round with the nurse and learn more about how to care for them. I gave them my cell phone number. My colleagues were happy to transfer their patients. It was a small number, and I liked them. It was fun to get out of the office every couple months. More importantly, care in the home allowed me to meet and work with the whole team and to directly observe function and interactions in my patient's own environment. Nobody told me no, and I was on a salary. I really don't know whether what we were paid or if we were paid, but I just did it. Like most physicians, I didn't get any specific training in how to care for adults with developmental disabilities in medical school. I started to look for my colleagues around the country who knew more than I did. I didn't find many. Most who had any experience got it while working in institutions. I did find nurses. Nurses have really been the leaders like you, Jerry. They have the expertise and nurses taught me everything I know. A few years later, my daughter was diagnosed with autism. I understood it was my job to keep my patients healthy, but once my own daughter was diagnosed, I quickly realized that discrimination was gonna be a barrier to good health. We found ourselves in a civil rights movement. When I would say my daughter is autistic, people would respond, oh, she can't be autistic, she's so smart, or, oh, I'm so sorry, or that's okay, she can still turn out normal. Those words bite. They sound a lot like the backhanded insults that people have flung at me like you're too pretty to be a lesbian or you're pretty smart for a woman or that's okay Jews can still go to heaven. My daughter's autistic and she's smart she's not normal she's twice exceptional healthcare for people with developmental disabilities is more than medical care it's changing how we think how we interact how we value and how we include. It's changing public policy and systems. It's changing hearts and minds. Around the time of my daughter's diagnosis, I sought out adults with disabilities for advice and was introduced to the emerging neurodiversity movement. The disability rights and neurodiversity movements informed the Office of Developmental Primary Care's approach from the very beginning. Some in the disability rights movement say that healthcare is the last frontier. We've made progress in housing, employment, education, and transportation. But people with disabilities don't want to be viewed as sick or defective. The disability community has rejected the medical model upon which the basic principles of healthcare delivery are based. Basically, the medical model is that normal is good, abnormal is bad, people who are abnormal are broken or defective, and it's our job as healthcare providers to make them function, look, and act more normally. Historically, doctors have operated under the medical model, which views disability as a flaw to be fixed. But people with disabilities have shown that accommodating environments can increase participation and atypical traits and characteristics can be accepted. The disability community adopted the social model of disability in the 1960s. They said, we aren't broken and defective or needing to be fixed. We're disabled and we need skills, education access, inclusion, we need accommodations and adaptive equipment and opportunities to maximize our potential. 15 years ago, when the Office of Developmental Primary Care was being established, no major disability organization had a healthcare agenda or priority. When approached, the response was something to the effect of, you take care of other people with complex conditions such as elders and people with chronic illnesses. Our needs aren't special. Take care of us like you take care of everyone else. If you're struggling to care for people with developmental disabilities, it must be your bad attitude. Don't lecture us about money. Doctors and the healthcare systems are rich. You don't need more money, go figure it out. Figuring it out is gonna require system and policy changes to build new ways to deliver healthcare. Regional centers, healthcare payers, service providers like the ARC, and healthcare providers, we're gonna to have to work together at the time, these groups weren't talking to each other, and I would say most doctors were like me. We didn't even know that regional centers existed. Shortly after my daughter's diagnosis, Phil Zeering, a physician at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, paid me a visit. By this time, people had heard I was doing group home visits. I was serving more patients. He said, we heard you're caring for people with developmental disabilities. I'm convening people to talk about how we're gonna provide healthcare for adults who are living in the community, so come join us. I did join. A core group of us soon had a small planning grant to think through what needed to be done. The core group included Jim Shorter, the executive director of Golden Gate Regional Center at the time, Mary Giamona, the medical director of the health plan of San Mateo, Alan Fox, the chief operating officer of the Arc of San Francisco, and Meggy Okamura, a health services researcher at UCSF, who's dual boarded in internal medicine and pediatrics. Jerry Collins-Bride had been caring for Lucy Crane's patients as they aged out of her practice, so she joined us to lend her expertise. We asked people with disabilities, what are the barriers? Well, what did they say? We can't get into your office or through your door. We can't use your call system. We get anxious if we have to wait, and your waiting rooms trigger our sensory sensitivities. We need longer appointment times to communicate. You and your staff aren't trained. We need help to navigate the healthcare system and implement our healthcare plans. So, in other words, people with disabilities were asking for different staffing, different support, different office design, different scheduling, different communication and appointment systems. They were asking for staff and clinicians with different training and procedures. Despite what they said, disability organizations really didn't wanna be treated like everyone else. The systems set up for elders and people with chronic diseases weren't working for them. What they actually were asking for is healthcare delivery designed to meet their needs. This is a big ask because multiple systems have to work together and they aren't used to doing so. They need a common goal. They have to share data and funds in order to make it work. Politics and policy get in the way. Healthcare systems, payers, regional centers, service providers, and people with disabilities and their families all have an important role. To pull collaborators together, our stakeholder group started with a broad vision and mission. Our vision is that healthcare for people with developmental disabilities is interprofessional team-based care with patients and their supporters at the center of the team. Our mission is that all people with developmental disabilities will have access to the healthcare services they need to maximize their wellness and function. With the planning grant, the CART model was born. CART stands for Clinical Service, Advocacy, Research and Training. The pillars of the model are enhanced primary care. That includes the therapies like speech, physical therapy, occupational therapy, mental health, and dental services. These services have to be local. Health advocacy services include patient and caregiver support, medical case management, wellness services such as exercise and nutrition support and transition supports. This is the contribution to healthcare delivery that comes from the patient and the disability services side. It's the long-term care component. The yearly health assessment is the proactive part of the model. Illness often presents as a change in behavior or function. Illness can easily go undiagnosed or undertreated. Systemic health assessments typically find between two and five undiagnosed or undertreated conditions, and assessments continue to yield results every year they're repeated. The final component of the model is the CART Center. This was envisioned to be the regional support. The CART Center would have the clinical aspects for all of Northern California and the state and it would be the home of health services researchers, health policy experts, and medical educators. The Office of Developmental Primary Care was established in the year 2007 as a program in the UCSF Department of Family and Community Medicine. Patricia Mejia was a key partner in building the program from the start, and my department chair, Kevin Grumbach, saw the potential of our rich community partnership And encouraged us to apply for the department's HRSA training grant. That gave us three years of support to develop our foundational curriculum for health professionals. We began to develop and teach health professionals an approach to patients that is based on the social and neurodiversity models of disability instead of teaching about different conditions. We teach an approach to the patient that recognizes that each person is an individual with unique traits and characteristics we approach each patient the same way, regardless of their condition. The approach starts with finding out who's on your team. We learn about the family and the direct service professionals who provide day-to-day care. We learn about their medical providers, and we learn about the service systems that support the patient. Most people with developmental disabilities are served by many different systems, such as schools, day programs, regional centers, social security, medical, even the Department of Vocational Rehab. If there are team members missing, we start by building the team. Healthcare for people with developmental disabilities is interprofessional team-based care. You can't work effectively with a team until you know who they are. Yet most of the time, doctors don't gather this very basic history because it isn't part of the standard history we're taught to take. After we understand a patient's environment and supports, we learn about their unique strengths and challenges. People with the same diagnosis can have a wide range of individual traits and characteristics. We learn how people think and learn, how they move, their seizure thresholds, their sensory profiles, and their mental health and behavior. We also seek to understand their goals and their aspirations and the barriers that they have to achieving them. What do they face in order that's preventing them from full participation and function? We need to understand that individuality before we do anything else. This approach to medical care is both simple and profoundly radical. It can be taught to a third year medical student in a couple of hours and modeled and practiced on a two week rotation. Yet it's so radical, there isn't even a standard way to document this assessment in electronic medical records. And it's not yet a a, it's not yet standard practice. Standard medical histories are organized entirely around signs, symptoms, and diagnoses. The medical model of disability upon which our current healthcare system is based doesn't lead to clear clinical thinking. It encourages us to categorize and label people and then assign standard treatments based on their diagnosis instead of understanding them as individuals. Simply viewing people with disabilities through this social model and neurodiversity lens has profound implications for how we view people's potential, their prognosis, the relative value and goals of interventions. It's a fundamental approach and orientation that makes the Office of Developmental Primary Care unique. While we started with a training grant, we hope to develop the Office of Developmental Primary Care into the CART Center model. We hope to develop clinical service, work on health policy, and support health services researchers. We also viewed our work as advancing the goals of the disability rights movement. The Special Hope Foundation, which is now called the With Foundation, was an essential partner through all of it. They provided steady, flexible funding every year for many years. They not only funded us, they strategically funded our partners in the effort, and this was critical help. It was the With Foundation that incentivized the self-advocacy and disability rights communities to define their healthcare policy agenda. Lynn O'Hara was a hands-on partner who took the time to understand the nuance of what we were trying to achieve, and Ryan Easterly now carries that role forward. Just as we were beginning our training grant, the state decided to close Agnews Developmental Center. The Great Recession hit, And for the first time, the state decided it wouldn't transfer people to another institution. It would develop homes and services in the community for all the remaining clients. The state was decimating the funding for the regional center system as a whole while lavishing funding and support on the several hundred clients still at Agnews. The people left were considered the hardest to serve in the community. They all had family members or advocates who didn't want them to move. Many had tried community placements in the past that hadn't gone well. The health plan of San Mateo asked me to help them determine how to provide medical care to people moving from Agnews to the community. This was the first time I received any special funding for the clinical services I was providing for complex patients. To develop the contract, I started to track the time required for my patients. I loved my job so much that I didn't realize it was taking me 10 times the amount of effort it takes to care for a typical primary care patient. I couldn't absorb my patients into my primary care practice without changing the structure of my job and how it was funded. In 2007, the state opened the first adult residential facility for persons with special healthcare needs, our pushin' to accept people from Agnes Developmental Center who needed 24-hour nursing care. Tina Desuacito was the licensee of the home, and I agreed to be the physician. Tina Desuacito is a remarkable nurse who greatly expanded my knowledge and understanding of what health outcomes were possible for people with complex disabilities. She she set a really high bar for developmental disability nursing. Virtually every successful nurse in the system has apprenticed with her at one time or another. Our push homes, as they're called, are four to five bed homes with 24-hour nursing care. We serve people with complex medical issues, behavioral health issues, or both. We serve people with tracheostomies, on ventilators, on chronic oxygen, on dialysis, on tube feeding. We serve people with unstable seizure disorders, people with self-injurious behaviors, serious psychiatric disabilities, aggression, rare conditions, or difficulty cooperating with medical care. When people age and their needs change, we adjust so people can live in their own homes. People can even receive hospice care so they can spend their last days surrounded by people who know and love them. We learn about each individual who needs our care and we keep working until we figure it out. Again, it's very simple. The practice model is basically me, my cell phone, and a laptop, a small patient panel, and a lot of flexibility in terms of where, how, and when I provide the care based on the evolving needs of the patient and their team. This model of care has been steadily expanded over the last 15 years, especially with the closure of Sonoma and Porterville developmental centers. There's now similar homes and services across the state. We've now helped hundreds of people with complex needs move out of developmental centers, skilled nursing facilities and other institutions into their own homes into the community. We've never said no because of someone's service needs or degree of disability. We work to ensure that people's lives are more than their medical care, that they get out into the community, have meaningful relationships and activities and pursue their interests. We support our patients when they're in the hospital or if they need rehabilitation and work to get them home. We make a commitment to each person who moves from an institution that they will be better off on day one. And I feel like we've made good on that promise. It's one thing to provide care to people in the Bay Area with its rich healthcare resources and abundance of specialists, but people with disabilities deserve to live in their own communities. California is a diverse state and much of it is rural and under-resourced. To address this, we developed the CART Consult Service, a mobile consult and assessment team with top experts in primary care, nursing, psychology, psychiatry, and family support. We traveled Northern California, helping regional center agencies sort out medical issues and services for their most complex clients. We focused on those who were either at risk of being institutionalized or who were moving from institutions and needed services built for them in the community. When local physicians, service providers, or hospitals didn't have the support or training to serve their community, we traveled to them. We saw their patients with them, supported them with comprehensive assessments, and gave grand rounds in local community hospitals. The service lost its funding, but it still informs our understanding of the scope of the issues across the state and the resources that we have to solve problems. As our program developed, so did our advocacy. We made three serious multi-agency efforts to secure stable funding for the CART model. We first, uh, we first did it at the state level, then at the federal, and finally at the regional center level. They all got strong interest, praise, and served to educate stakeholders and policymakers, but ultimately, ultimately none of them succeeded. One of the most powerful ways to make system change is to train more healthcare providers with disabilities. To improve care, we actually needed to change the culture of our medical center to recognize that disability is a valued part of diversity. In 2012, I was serving as the co-chair of the Chancellor's Advisory Committee on Disabilities, on disability issues. When I took over the committee, it was focused on legal compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act ergonomic evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome and policies for pregnancy leave. Disability was a diversity committee, but it wasn't really viewed as a diversity issue. I had an opportunity to give a short speech to the chancellor and to university leadership. Basically, I just read the university's diversity policy to them word for word with the word disability, where they were used to hearing the words women, racial minorities, and or LGBT people. Then I read a current job posting from the UCSF website. This position provides accommodation assistance to employees with injuries and illnesses in order to control the costs of disability, reduce lost time, and balance the business needs of UCSF and the interests of disabled UC UC faculty and staff in compliance with UC policy and state and federal disability and leave laws. Without comment, I just rewrote the posting. This position supports the recruitment and retention of UCSF employees and faculty with disabilities. Duties include developing cost-effective solutions to meet the needs of individuals, ensuring solutions are consistent with UC policies on inclusion and diversity, and improving retention and productivity through improving the social and physical work environment. People with disabilities are strongly encouraged to apply. My talk was met with stunned silence. The silence went on forever. And <laughs> nobody said a word to me after. I didn't know if my work on the committee had made a difference. Traditionally, health profession students and faculty are too afraid of career repercussions to disclose their disabilities. A few years ago, disabled healthcare profession students and allies started a support group. They came to me for faculty sponsorship of programs and electives. Today, the group continues, and a student-run elective is offered each fall. Multiple students have taken on curricular and service projects. They have advocated for more training. And I'm happy to say that we've succeeded in supporting health profession students with disabilities into a powerful force for change. We're proud of the Office of Developmental Climate Care's efforts to improve the climate for people with disabilities and that that effort has paid off. Today, the Office of Developmental Primary Care is focused on four main activities. First, our developmental primary care practice supports 25 homes, including a COVID-19 quarantine home. Over the past year, we have helped our community navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Because of the strong teams we've developed with residential service providers, regional center staff, and the health plan of San Mateo, we were able to shift seamlessly to telehealth. Second, our training continues to be a primary focus. We offer talks ranging from COVID-19 vaccines to understanding aggression and self-injury. We provide consults to many clinicians and organizations. We offer an elective on developmental disabilities that's currently on hold but will resume when it's safe to do so. Third, the Office of Developmental Primary Care's website offers a wealth of resources. It's the only comprehensive disability website that's completely mirrored in Spanish. Materials, all of our materials, are also available in Chinese. These resources were developed with input from healthcare providers service providers and family members, and many of our materials were written by self-advocates. Popular materials include guides on sexuality, transition and accessing communication, as well as information on patient-centered care and quality of life. Our latest project involves the creation of a practical consensus guide to implementing supported healthcare decision-making. The guide is called Partners in Health, implementing supported healthcare decision making for users of augmentative and alternative communication, and it can be found on our website and if you uh, visit our the Office of Developmental Primary Cares booth. uh, There's a link to it there. Last, while producing research has never been our focus we contribute our expertise and experience to researchers who are asking and answering important questions. We've been long-term partners of the highly productive Aspire community-based participatory research group. And we've worked on many projects with the autism research team at the Kaiser Permanente Autism Research Program. We've also partnered with Megumi, uh, Meggy Okamura on her evidence into practice. We've written clinical review articles for major clinical journals, book chapters, and key health professions textbooks, and contributed curricular resources to help spread our approach. When Jerry told me that the office of developmental primary care was going to be honored, my initial reaction was, "Wait, no, we aren't done. <laughs> the the self-determination program is just getting started. We we know how to serve people in group homes, but how do we do how do we provide the same level of care and coordination to people who are directing their own services? We don't yet have all of the service models we need." for people with complex psychiatric disabilities and behavioral support needs. And I was really excited to hear about that START model. I think that's on the right track. We need to work on preventing, identifying, and addressing abuse. Also, the non-speaking community is just getting organized. And boy, do they have a lot to say, and they're on fire. Communication is the foundation of patient care. Everybody communicates. Non-speaking self-advocates are demanding that they have access to robust communication, se- communication systems from an early age and that th- their access to those communication s- systems don't disappear when they graduate from school. They're demanding that they be taught literacy, that they be free of restraint and isolation, that they have access to regular classrooms and higher education, and that they get to choose their best communication methods and supports. They're telling us that we need to communicate directly with them in the exam room. We are proud of what we've accomplished, but we're not done. So I, I look forward to going into our uh, virtual virtual happy hour to mingle and find out how we can write the next chapter of this story. I'm looking forward to chatting with you and to hearing more about what you're doing, and how we can move the field forward. And I just want to thank you so much for being here for sticking out the day. Uh, and, and for this, uh, and for this honor, I'm, I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much.